Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always with us is Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So... A lot going on in the news, actually, and we will be turning to that in a second, but stick around for the second half of the podcast when we will be talking about the hunger crisis, which has been with us for a while and will be with us for a while yet. So yeah, stick around for that. But first, we decided to focus our new segment on the data point 67. That is the number of governments that Italy has had in just over 75 years. The current one is led by Prime Minister Mario Draghi, but... The country's Prime Minister Mario Draghi has resigned. Mr. Mario Draghi has resigned after his government coalition splintered. His resignation has been accepted by the country's president, who will now decide the next step. The coalition he was leading in Italy has collapsed out from under him, and this is leading to turmoil in Europe's third largest economy and obviously that's of significance for the entire continent and from there for the entire world but how did it get to that point and what does it mean that's what we're going to dive into right now so adam what exactly is going on in italy i mean why was mario draghi who used to be the european central bank chief why exactly was he prime minister to begin with and why is he in so much trouble right now Yeah, I mean, Mario Draghi is not a politician in the conventional sense of the word, certainly not an elected politician. Um, He was chosen to helm the Italian government in February 2021 in the wake of the COVID crisis, which if you remember, if you think back to the spring of 2020, the COVID crisis in Europe really exploded in, in Italy, in northern Italy in particular. There's horrible pictures of from March 2020. So Italy was reeling from the impact of COVID. But then, um, you know, more optimistically, the EU in 2020 um, had girded itself to provide a really gigantic investment package to assist the recovery of Europe. And at the f- centre of that and the foreground was Italy. So Italy is set to receive over 190 billion euros in grants and loans from the EU. And so Rome needed, Italian politics needed, you know, the safest possible pair of hands, if you like, to manage this unprecedented, really. It's a huge historic opportunity for Italy, these funds. And Mario Draghi was the obvious man. The, the Italian politics works in the sort of shifting balance between the parties in parliament. This parliament was elected in 2018, and it was a dramatic election because it yielded a huge breakthrough for the two populists, um, the Five Star Movement and the Lega Nord, The what once was called Lega Nord. It's no longer called that. It's just called the League but the sort of nationalist uh, right-wing populists. And that parliament has been, as it were, constantly manoeuvred around with a succession of governments with different coalition backings. And over the winter of 2020, 2021, it seemed clear that um, 
you know, to, to provide Rome with a really solid platform for negotiations with the EU, they needed they needed a, a, the strongest pair of hands they could come up with, and, and that was Mario Draghi. And over the course of the last six months, really, his government has run up increasingly against opposition, which, because it's such a broad-based government, in fact comes from inside the ranks of the parties notionally supporting the government. And that's essentially what Draghi found increasingly intolerable. The opposition was both about social and economic policy and foreign policy. Draghi's taken a very strong line on Ukraine and the war, Russia's aggression against Ukraine. And on the other hand, the problem of inflation. And uh, in the last couple of weeks, the situation became unbearable. Uh, Draghi attempted to call the party's bluffs by saying, right, well, I'll resign and, and, and you know, can I, can I demand that you, as you fall back into line behind the government? And the rather humbling outcome of this tactical manoeuvre on Draghi's part is, in fact, that the, the Five Star and the Lega have basically declared that, no, they aren't going to back the government because he hasn't delivered, in their view, what they demand. And that's, that's what's left, as it were, this collapse that we now, that we now face. You mentioned the Ukraine war being a factor in triggering this kind of collapse. What exactly is the role that it played there? Yeah, it's it's double-edged. I mean, I think you could plausibly say that this is the first major political crisis in Western Europe triggered by the war um, in a double sense. I mean, A, the immediate impact of the war um, on Italy, like many other parts of the European economy, is very severe because of en um, Italy's energy dependence on Russia. Germany is not the only country, not the only economy in Europe, which has tied itself to cheap energy imports from Russia. Italy was very much in that same boat, is very much in that same boat, and has rather fewer alternative energy options than Germany does, in fact. So it's a big issue. Uh, inflation is very rapid in, in Italy, and given the stagnation of the economy and the lackluster state of the labor market, it's very painful for those on lower incomes. So that's one part of this. And the social protests, especially those from um, the Lega and certain parts of Five Star, are focused precisely on that. Is, is, has, has Draghi kind of revealed his stripes, actually, as a pretty hardcore neoliberal when they talk about reform in Italy, what this can actually mean is, you know, stripping away large parts of the welfare state. So that's one element of the story. The other element is, in fact, that a large part of Italian public opinion is sceptical on the position taken by the West. I mean, amongst the Western European countries, bracketing Greece, which is sort of sui generis because of its horrible history during the Cold War, but bracketing Greece, the Italian population is probably the most NATO sceptical of any of the Western European publics. And it's just not clear that there is maybe majority, but it's a narrow majority rather than a solid majority of support for aggressive support of Ukraine against Russia if it comes at a significant price for Italy. And there is a deep legacy of mistrust and suspicion towards NATO and the Western alliance and its role in, in provoking this conflict. And Draghi at first was, as it were, with the Germans, if you like, a little uncertain his position. There were all those discreditable stories about Italy trying to opt, you know, negotiate opt-outs for its luxury good companies from the sanctions against Russia. All of that went away. And Draghi lined up very in a very hardline position. He's really adopted, you know, he's been a co, you know, along with Schultz and Macron, German Chancellor and French president, he's been very much part of this trio of European statesmen who've been trying to you know, fashion a, a front against Russia. And that that plays well with the sort of people who like that kind of politics. And it reinforces, you know, Draghi's reputation as this champion of, you know, enlightened Western technocracy. But it's just not very popular with large segments of the Italian public, and particularly not with the voter base of Five Star. And um, the League as well has also at various points had a, you know, I mean, uh, Salvini has, has, has been a, a Putin bro at various moments. 
And so there was real tension in the government over this over this quite fundamental issue in foreign policy. And in the end, I think that that drove a wedge in. Of course, always these are choices, right? So so Conte, the former prime minister who was ousted essentially to make way for for Draghi, has led within Five Star the anti-Draghi, shall we say, soft on Putin kind of line. And of course, everyone looking at that figures that um, really it's Conte's ambition. But the tinder was there. If there were political entrepreneurs who wanted to take advantage of it, fair enough. But the material for dissent and uh, the disintegration of the Draghi coalition was was there and has been dramatically amplified by the war. So I mentioned that Italy is the European Union's third largest economy. So, I mean, what kind of collateral economic damage does this turmoil in, in Italy cause for other countries in the Eurozone? And, and what is the ECB, the European Central Bank, doing about this potential for collateral damage? Yeah, the real worry here are financial markets and debt. So we're back to a kind of Eurozone crisis territory here with Italy. And arguably, though the Eurozone crisis 2010 to 2015 centred, you know, in the headlines on Greece and then sometimes Spain, really at the back of it all was always the worry about Italy. And if Italy's financial situation was precarious and difficult in the 2010s, it's even more uh, stressed now because Italy's debt-to-GDP ratio is over 150% of GDP, whereas it was previously around 130%. That is very difficult to sustain unless you have some sort of relatively rapid economic growth or very, very, very tight fiscal policy, or markets which believe that you can handle the debt, in which case interest rates are low and you can handle the debt. And the worry in the current moment is that we have this inflationary surge, we have the ECB raising interest rates this week by a half percentage point, which is the most dramatic increase they've done. And we now have this political turmoil in Italy, which is from the point of view of Italy's debt management, from the point of view of those who want to stabilize the debt markets in Europe, really the worst case scenario. And the worry is that this could spill over to other fragile, heavily indebted southern European states, most notably at this point, Spain. And so it's highly significant that this week on Thursday, the ECB has announced this thing called the Transmission Protection Instrument, which is a tool for allowing the ECB to stabilize spreads. In other words, the gap between the interest rate that Italy pays and Spain pays and the lowest rate that anyone pays in the Eurozone, which will generally be Germany. And so we're seeing now in real time, like the political class, the the, tech, the decision-making class, the economic policy-making class of Europe rally around this question of how Europe can deal with inflation on the one hand, and deal with the gap that emerges in moments when you raise interest rates between the weakest and the strongest borrowers, and a, an Italian political crisis all at the same time. You know, if it's true that Europe is made in crisis, then this week, and specifically uh, Thursday, the twenty-first of July, is going to go down as uh, a pretty major moment. We're not yet in the territory of, you know, the classic eurozone crisis, but. Um, this is a configuration of forces as difficult as the ECB and other policymakers have had to deal with since the Eurozone crisis. The combination of the energy price shock, the energy boycott from the Russian side, the threat of stagflation, and now an open political crisis in Rome, that's the worst case scenario. So I do want to uh, say here that we had have had several listener questions that are perfectly apt here because two of our listeners specifically asked independently of each other uh, for an explanation of why Italy's economy has been so stagnant for so long. And if there's any kind of clear 
explanation for that? I'd like to request an episode talking about the malaise of European countries in uh, Southern Europe, especially Italy, from where I'm from. For my whole life, the Italian economy has been really weak, and I've never really seen a clear explanation as to why exactly and why it's been so persistent for so long. So what do you think about that, Adam? Yeah, it's, it's almost as though political events overtook us, because when we when we looked at this listener question, we thought, excellent, it'd be good to do a full segment on the long-run malaise of the Italian economy, and wham, bang, Italian politics explodes before we even get to do that episode. So, yes, I mean, the background to much of the difficulty of Italian politics is that in terms of GDP per capita, in real terms, Italians today are worse off than they were 20 years ago. And that's a remarkable fact, right? This is a capitalist democracy which is attempting to maintain functionality and legitimacy without economic growth once you break it down to the population level. And that's really difficult to do. That's an incredibly difficult balancing act because you can't promise people, you know, N-words, the growing of the cake. You can't, exp- you, can't, you can't shuffle distributional issues into a general expansion. None of that works in the Italian case currently. So where do those problems come from? We really should do an entire episode about this because stagnant economies are fascinating and alarming and, 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 and deeply interesting. But it is clearly some combination of uh, deep structural issues and shocks uh, from the outside and, and the two compounding each other. And there's a politics to making this distinction, right? Because within the Eurozone, the shall we say hawkish conservatives in the North say, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with the Eurozone or the policy we pursued with it. It's just that Italy has a broken legal system or Italy has an education system that doesn't provide its workforce with the kind of skills they need. And that, and you know, Italy faces competition with China like everyone else, and its R and D base is just not as strong as it needs to be. And so, therefore, you need the complex of measures that generally goes by the name reforms, which are liberalisation, more market competition, an improvement, a reshuffling of public spending away from elderly Italians who are very well taken care of, relatively speaking, by the pension system, towards young people who don't receive enough government funding for the you know formation of human capital. That's, as it were, one view. And it's hard to deny, you don't need to spend very long in Italy to realize that there is a powerful element of truth to many of those kind of criticisms. But if they're left to stand as the only explanation, essentially it becomes Italy, it needs to do its homework, sort itself out, as the Germans like to say, and then all would be well. But if you look at the history of Italy over the last 25 years, it's quite clear that shocks, policy decisions, policy decisions in part forced on Italy by the constraints of Europe, Italy's decision to accept the constraints of Europe is a choice made by Europe, Italy's political class in the 1990s. Mario Draghi was at the core of that group. And those choices, then as a result of the pressures exercised on Italy by other European states, notably Germany, have had very damaging impact on the Italian economy. And so I think the smart money in trying to understand Italy's malaise is to think of it as a series of, as it were, structural weaknesses that were in part exposed by the rise of China, because China and Italy compete in the same sort of medium quality, medium cost manufacturing segments to a considerable extent, and then compounded, these deep structural problems were compounded by the shock of 2008 and the Eurozone crisis of 2010, which reduced aggregate demand across the European economy, reduced investment and consumption, and squeezed the Italian economy, and as it were, forced the Italian economy into a pattern of ever slower growth, 
in which the incentives to further investment, research and development and so on were weaker and weaker. And it's some it's very complicated. It's not it's not always to me that we do in fact have a good comprehensive account of why why Italy is stuck in the trap that it is. But it's some combination of, as it were, discretionary choices, institutional frameworks. And on the other hand, these deep national problems that Italy needs to address um, that really accounts for this. But we could, as we've said, we should do a whole episode about it because this is not a problem that's going anywhere anytime soon. And we will be talking about the fallout from this, I think. You know, there's an election in October. We will be, we'll be asking ourselves really quite serious questions about the political economy of Italy and Italian society. Yeah, and I guess just finally, I mean, you mentioned the neo-fascist parties in Italy that may end up on top of the next election. I mean, is there anything else about the coming election in Italy that we, that we should be looking out for? What's the most likely outcome in your eyes, exactly? Well, right now, it looks like odds on for a strong showing by the right wing, which consists essentially of three major groups, the Fratelli, who've, who've replaced the Lega. As the Lega went into government, in a sense, the Fratelli rose, and the Fratelli are between 22 and 23, 24%. The Lega is down around 15%, so they are the formerly northern separatist, pro-business, rather hardline on immigration party. And then there's Silvio Berlusconi, if you like, the world's original kind of populist oligarch. Um, his Forza d'Italia party has a you know eight or nine percent. You add those up, and you've got like a forty-five percent vote on a good day for the Italian conservatives and the Italian Italian right wing, indeed in some cases far right wing. And then the question would be: Is that you know will the president Mattarella allow that that coalition to actually take power? Will he find reasons to manipulate the situation such that it'll be difficult for them to do so? And will those three parties, because the Lega and the Fratelli d'Italia are in fierce competition with each other, will they actually agree? And will Silvio Berlusconi and you know, his, presumably his very last and final act in Italian politics play, want to play the kingmaker and open the door to the Fratelli as the dominant party in government? So those questions are still to be resolved. But I think that's where all of the focus is going to be. It's possible there'll be some you know, unexpected surge of disappointed Italians who love the Draghi regime and are now furious at those parties for undermining his government. That's, as it were, the kind of dream of the centrists and the, the liberals in Italy, that somehow they will suffer a comeuppance in the polls sometime in the fall. But those will be two, the two questions. Does anyone pay a price for bringing Draghi down? And how well will the right do? And will the right be able to concert themselves so as to form a, a potentially really quite ominous government? Okay, so it's ciao, at least for now, for Draghi, and then we'll see what flavor of right-winger uh, will likely end up on top, it sounds like. But uh, we do need to leave it there for now, and we will be back in a second to talk about the hunger crisis. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And 
I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. The next data point is 323 million. That is the number of people who are now on the brink of starvation, according to statistics from the UN. A new international report released with a dire global outlook. Now, one in 10 humans are suffering from hunger. The accumulation of the COVID-19 crisis, of conflict and of climate change. And with the conflict in Ukraine, we see that that gets worse. That is the result of a global food crisis that has been triggered by the war in Ukraine. Both Ukraine and Russia, which has been under sanctions by the West, are major producers of grain, but also cooking oil and other agricultural products. But it's not only the war. There's obviously also a broader inflation problem that we've all been reckoning with that has made food more expensive around the world and making it harder to access for many countries, especially countries that don't have high incomes to begin with. So we wanted to tackle this growing food crisis and I guess, Adam, where I wanted to start was with specifically the war in Ukraine. I mean, what are the ways by which specifically this war has resulted in this food crisis? I mean, how much is a direct byproduct of the war itself versus, you know, the Western sanctions? And how unusual, I guess, is it in a broader sense for combatants in a war to use inflation as a tool of war, as I guess kind of it seems Russia is trying to do and as the West is also trying to do in applying sanctions to Russia? Well, I think the first point to make is that Russia's attack on Ukraine is causing the crisis that it is um, because it intersects with a situation that was already extremely stressed before the 24th of February 2022, right? There was, there was already an incipient crisis in the global food system before Russia launched this insane assault on Ukraine. And the UN had been warning about a food crisis um, really since 2020, um, acute famine has so far been just about avoided in East Africa and Afghanistan over this winter uh, before, you know, in December, January, February, many folks in the international community were extremely concerned about famine in the sense of, you know, children with distended stomachs and people dying in the street in Afghanistan and in, in their villages 
that has so far been avoided. Um, but the general updrift in prices since 2020, the, the low point of the COVID shock, has been causing concern around the world now for, for several years before the war started. And it's a really tricky business, this, this analysis of, of famine risk and, and hunger. And there's actually a thing called the integrated food security phase classification, um, which is a way of speaking internationally in a, in a coordinated and reliable way about the risks, right? Both on the one hand, so as to raise attention, but also so as not to fall into a kind of crying wolf alarmism, which undermines the legitimacy and credibility of these claims. So that the number that you quoted, the 323 number, is, is endorsed from all sides. It's a G7 number. It has the backing of the UN. But it's uh, carefully phrased, right? Um, the phrase is marching towards starvation. This means that people are becoming increasingly precarious. And that number surged from 110 to 120 million people in 2017, 2019, to 155 million in 2020, to 193 million in 2021, and then add another 130 million. And that's where you end up with the number that we've got now. And, and this state is one in which households are already missing key ingredients in their normal diet, um, are marginally able to meet food needs, and are engaging in irreversible coping strategies. In other words, selling land, selling cattle, liquidating assets so as to be able to stay alive. And so that is, as it were, the critical stage where we begin to, to as it were, strike the alarm because, because hunger, you know, a malnutrition are epidemic in, in society because of global poverty. But when you see families literally going short um, in an acute way and liquidating assets, you're entering this much more dangerous stage. So that's been going on really since 2021 in an accelerated form. And why and what's it got to do with the war? Well, it's driven by the fact that Russia and Ukraine sit on some of the most fertile agricultural soil in the world, the Black Earth region. They are famously the breadbasket of Europe. So roughly 10% of world's traded wheat, not all wheat grown, but the stuff that's traded comes from Ukraine and 18% from Russia. Um, they also produce a huge share of global corn production and 60% of sunflower oil. And those flows of commodities out of the Black Sea region go to very heavily dependent importing countries, um, the most dramatic and important of which is Egypt, where 82% of Egypt's wheat supply comes from the Black Sea region, from Ukraine and Russia, 82%. In countries like Somalia, you know, desperately poor, it's 100% of, of their wheat imports come from Ukraine and Russia. And the interruption is this layered, you know, massively overdetermined situation where it's a war zone. The Ukrainians have mined their own approaches to Odessa because, of course, what they're worried about is an amphibious landing by the Russian Navy. The Russians are intercepting shipping. The Turks have, have blocked uh, naval escorts from traveling through the Bosphorus. No insurance company will go anywhere near this. No one wants to send their ships into harm's way. Um, and it's very dramatic. I mean, I don't personally think it's helpful to talk in terms of a Russian hunger plan or a kind of, you know, uh, grand strategy of destabilization. But surely from Moscow's point of view, the longer this simmers, the more the pressure builds. It's a kind of reverse blockade. So we have a, uh, an absolute gridlock of constraints operating here. So, I mean, I know that we've periodically had famines in individual countries. Um, my whole upbringing, there would always be kind of fundraisers for specific countries, I guess, suffering from food shortages. But how rare is it to have a food crisis that really traces back to this kind of structural global supply issue for food uh, as a whole for global markets? 
Yeah, there have been two really big spikes in the last half century in global food prices across the board, as you say, not in particular commodities in particular countries, but across the board. Um, and the one is in the early 1970s, around 1973, and the other is around 2007-8 with a second wave that then struck in 2010-2011. And um, the the logic in, in each case is somewhat different. I mean, the, the 73 one was very much driven by uh, drought initially. So there were global climate change conditions, we think a kind of early phase perhaps of climate change there, which affected production around the world. There was catastrophic failure of harvest in the communist bloc, which made the Soviet Union suddenly into a major importer. And then the energy price crisis feeds into the agricultural system because it raises the price of fertilizer. And the more sophisticated and modern your agriculture, the more dependent you are on fossil fuels really. For, for fertilizer. And, and so there was this major feedback loop from the OPEC price shock to the costs of agricultural production. And all of that added up to, I mean, I think you're too young, aren't you? You don't really remember this, but, um, but uh, certainly my generation was, was very much shaped by the imagery of that early 70s famine. This is the last time there's really big major food crisis in, in South Asia as well. So India, Bangladesh, um, this is the period where Mother Teresa is key in Calcutta. And the story of 2007-8 is somewhat different because that I think is really the result more of economic growth. So in 73, we really saw supply falling short of demand. What we saw in 2007-8 is just an escalation of global demand. As, as, as globalization produced economic growth really around the world, food demand went up. There was also a very counterproductive and dangerous surge in the demand for uh, food, wheat in particular, to be fed into the ethanol production regime because of uh, the production of biofuels. And that combination produces a really painful spike in food prices uh, in 2007-8, which is then resumed in 2010-2011. So if 73 is a story of supply failure, 2007-8 seems like more like a demand shock and what we're dealing with today is a kind of combination of geopolitical factors and, you know, the reshuffling of global demand following COVID and then the interruption of global supplies, plus some very adverse climate conditions right now. Many, many of the major um, agricultural regions of the world are suffering from drought. So what happens now in a poor country that is facing this kind of problem? Food of all kinds is more expensive. So what can the government do in that situation? Can it foot the bill for food imports for the country as a whole? Uh, I mean, has there even been a shift to government rationing in, in some countries? R rationing is a really drastic measure. It requires you to really be on the ground as well. I mean, it's certainly something that you can adopt. You can guarantee minimum food supplies for the poorest parts of the population. But the most common government measure um, is uh, food price subsidy. What countries like Egypt, for instance, have habitually done is to subsidize the price of, of bread because it's so critical to the population. And what you do there is that you, you go on the global market and buy grain at whatever price you have to pay. And then you absorb the difference between that price and what you sell the bread for um, onto the government budget. And this creates huge tension, right? Because then as the global price surges and you hold the domestic price stable, you um, basically incur larger and larger um, deficits. And because the grain has to be paid for in foreign currency and the revenue you get from selling the bread is in local currency, you also have a currency mismatch. So this can produce foreign exchange crises. 
And furthermore, of course, from an economist's point of view, it's um, dangerous because it sets the wrong incentives because, you know, with low prices for bread, you don't encourage bread production. Um, bakers would far rather sell better bread, you know, in the black market at uncontrolled prices. And on the other hand, of course, you don't incentivize the reduction in the consumption of bread. And that's part of the point. You don't want to starve poor people. But you also don't incentivize middle class people to reduce their consumption in any meaningful way. And so the risk here is that you then get caught into a system where you cannot really remove the price controls because then people will literally starve. But if you continue the price controls, you run out of you run out of not just cash, but out of foreign exchange. I mean, exactly whose responsibility is it in our current kind of system of global governance to organize this kind of food aid for countries that are in need? I mean, is there a specific institution that can organize the response or does it all end up kind of being ad hoc? And does the help necessarily even come in the form of direct aid or are there more sort of creative financial solutions being cooked up, you know, kinds of long term loans or, or that kind of thing? There's a huge spectrum here. And when you're talking about acute famine, starvation conditions, that generally goes hand in hand with state failure. So if you think about Afghanistan or Somalia or South Sudan, right, the government has failed, um, or the current situation in Ethiopia, where you've had a civil war, and you've also got uh, harvest failure. Um, so in situations like that, the agencies that tend to take over are UN agencies, which coordinate aid globally and, and track, you know, the situation. There's a science here, like a huge body of expertise and tens of thousands of people around the world whose job it is to track these, these processes of, of danger. And then you parachute in or you rely on aid agencies, uh, a whole mesh of them, like various types of, of aid relief agency on the ground to ensure that people don't starve. This is what has kept people alive in Afghanistan over this winter, right? Is, is that there were deeply entrenched uh, um, aid agencies, NGOs of different types around the world that could be fed with food from UN programs, which are themselves then funded by national governments, um, not adequately, but anyway, that produces the supply of food. And in those acute famine situations, as it were, the, these global agencies constitute a kind of parastate that, that sits inside the failed state and provides basic relief. I mean, and in extremists, right, they constitute an entirely new society around refugee camps, which become one of the places where you can still obtain food. And so people, one of the effects of famine is generally speaking, famine driven mass migration, because people become desperate, leave their farms and go looking for where there might be food. And so they end up then in camps. So then you have entire societies administered essentially by the aid agencies. Reversing that can be very, very difficult to do because it's risky to leave that safe spot. And because we're talking about failed states, these are often also conflict conditions. The situation in Egypt is completely different, right? I mean, Egypt has a military-run, massively authoritarian state machine, which presides as best it can over these mega cities like Cairo. And there, the, the form that relief takes, um, insofar as it arrives at all, is in the form of um, you know, a government deal between, between Cairo and the, and the IMF which will or will not provide, and the terms will vary, the loans that Egypt needs. And a very complex, technocratically mediated bargain will be done between the experts on the Egyptian side and the IMF experts about precisely what their calculus is as to how quickly they remove the price controls on bread, which people they keep them available for, what is the trade-off, what else does Egypt have to do to demonstrate to the IMF that it's on course to restabilize its situation. And because 
this is Egypt, right? And Egypt really is at the center of this because it's so dependent on Ukraine and Russia. It's not just the IMF that's interested, but Egypt and, and Sisi's regime there, of course, is the cat's paw of Saudi and the Gulf, the Emirates, um, because they ousted the brotherhood that was Turkey's, you know, cat's paw. And so Egypt will be locked into a whole geopolitical regime of assistance. So there the state is absolutely present, whereas in a situation um, of, of really just dire famine, the problem is how do you constitute a government machine at all to ensure that people don't starve to death? Okay, yeah, we do need to leave things here for now. But yeah, maybe we'll return to this soon enough. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks as always to my co-host Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about.
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.